I don't know if a lot of people know this, Sean, but let's face the facts. There are, there are a lot of men that don't open up and kind of get stuff off their chest, so to speak, in order to not only help others, but to help themselves. Because what I discovered is, is that by sharing my story, it's helped a lot of people immensely, and, but it's helped me just as much, if not more. And I, could, I can't really explain the ins and outs of all of that. I just know it does something for me. You know, it, um, it just helps me, helps me become stronger as a man and as a father and as a survivor. Hey, what's up, people? This is Sean Dustin, the host of the show. Uh, today is Sunday, March 22nd. Uh, it's about 4.45 in the morning. I woke up around 3.30 this morning and uh, couldn't sleep. So I decided to uh, edit this uh, episode. This is uh, number 23. Uh, in this episode, I talked to uh, Joe Potosi. And he is a author of a book titled When the Dust Settled. And our conversation was about uh, his story and, uh, you know, early uh, to adolescent child abuse uh, from his mother and stepfather. I was uh, a good story, a good chat, good uh, interview. Uh, Joe's a strong uh, individual, a fighter, and uh, he showed it. And he explained to me a little bit about himself, his story, his life. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy what uh, what the conversation that we had. Uh, on another note, uh, this is probably the second or third day of the uh, mandatory shelter in place for California. Uh, these are sh- strange times. Um that's the only really way I can explain it. I've never experienced anything like this before in my lifetime. And I'm sure there are plenty more of you out there that are in the same boat. Uh, we're all in unfamiliar territory right now. Uh, but the most important thing is, is, uh, don't panic. This will pass, uh, at some point, this isn't going to be the new norm and just believe that. Um, you know, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm a guy that subscribes to, uh, conspiracies and, you know, I go down, down rabbit holes quite deep on some subjects. Uh, but even with this, I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, what if it isn't bullshit? What if it is serious? And, uh, you know, and I, don't take it seriously and I myself get infected and, you know, pass that on to some other folks like, like my mother, or if I happen to see her or, you know, she's in her seventies and, or my dad, uh, you know, what, how would I feel if I was responsible for that? And I'm just erring on the side of caution, irregardless of what my thoughts on, on how it really got started and, and what the, you know, if it was man-made, what, what were the, uh, you know, what were the reasons, um, you know, but I'm just kind of like trying to put all that to the side and just practice a little bit of conformity, 
um, even though I I hate conforming to anything. But if this is legit, you know, how much of an ass would I feel like if I didn't take it seriously and, you know, listen to all the different warnings that are out there, uh, you know, hand washing, social distancing and, and all of that. Uh, so I, like I said, I'm erring on the side of caution. Uh, I only travel to one place and that's my, uh, uh, to go pick up my daughter and then right back, um, you know, plenty of hand sanitizer, uh, and, and, and all of that. So just don't panic. Try and, and plan. I mean, if you're going to, you know, need groceries or something, you know, don't wait until you're out. You're going to have to probably plan it, you know, go about four days or, or, you know, three days before you're out of something. That way, if, it's too crowded. You still have another, all right, well, let me try it at this time of the morning or, you know, afternoon or whenever it is. That, that's kind of what I've been doing. And, uh, it's, it, it's working out. Uh, I also have a couple of more episodes to release after this one. I was yesterday, I was kind of bored and I just thought, Hey, you know, with this social distancing, why don't I, you know, and I'm always thinking that, you know, something's a conspiracy or, you know, this was done, uh, you know, the media is just, you know, blowing this up. And so, well, why don't I try and reach out to some people, uh, in the community, in the podcasting community and see if anybody wanted to do a, uh, a four to six person like zoom check-in, uh, zoom conference check-in and turn it into an episode. And I was successful. Uh, I got three people on the first attempt. So there's an hour there. And then I had uh, four people on the second attempt and there's about an hour and a half there. And it's basically just checking in, you know, Hey, where are you from? What's your name? Uh, what's your situation in the city that you're in? Um, you know, do you know anybody that's infected? Uh, and it was, it was pretty cool, man. And it was a cool way to just reach out to other folks and, and, you know, we were all able to kind of, you know, put politics aside and, and, you know, other things aside and, and just, you know, kind of tell each other how we're feeling, you know, what our fears were, you know, what is this going to turn into? And on the second one, I actually uh, got to talk to a guy up in Canada who's part of, um, uh, spe- uh, like not special operations, but like a security uh, type of uh, situation or a job, and uh, he he actually you know was there on the front lines of the fight um, up in Canada. So he explained some stuff and was kind of you know let us know that hey this is real. I I know some people that have that have gotten this and and do have this right now, and uh, you know it's not take it, take it serious because it is serious. So that was cool. I mean, it kind of helped put it in perspective because if you don't know anybody and all you're hearing is the media, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, to digest and take something seriously that you can't see. Um, you know, that's why I had so much, I had such an issue with religion because I like, you're wanting me to accept this authority that I can't see. And 
I just I just never bought into it. And so it was good to see that uh not good to see, but I mean it was it was good that I was able to confirm with, you know, somebody out there, which was the whole point. I wanted to, you know, go find for myself uh the answer I was looking for and it was pretty cool. Uh, and I'm probably going to try it out again uh, maybe this evening or tomorrow evening. But it's definitely a good way to get some social socialization, uh, talk to other people around the country and other countries, and uh, just kind of help each other get through this. You know, we're all in unfamiliar territory, and the best possible thing that we can do is lean on each other right now. You know, through social media, your friends, um, you know, use FaceTime or any of the other platforms like Zoom or Skype and get a group together and just kind of talk to each other. And, you know, that kind of helps, uh, settle fears and anxieties and, and, you know, and just helps us relate to one another and, in a time when we've been so divided through social media, let's try and use it for a, 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 a good cause and to, if you want to say, um, you know, help each other, uh, get closer. You know, we're, we're all in this together. Um, you know, irregardless of how many continents there are, uh, in this, um, world and how many different lands that there are. Uh, we are all human and this is about humanity and it's not about tribal, you know, I know that's how, you know, we were in the past, but I think, you know, we should all be coming together for a common, a common cause right now. And, you know, helping people is not a bad thing, especially those that need it. And so that's what I'm trying to do, you know, right now is just, uh, do my part. You know, I have a, a platform and, a. um, I mean, it's not like I reach a whole lot of people, but I mean, if you're out there listening, I definitely appreciate it. Uh, well, that's enough of me. Um, so anyways, let's, uh, get to this episode. And like I said, I got a couple more coming out, so be safe. Wash your hands, practice social distancing, don't be a spreader. That's uh, not, you know, no, nobody wants to have that on, on their hands. So let's uh, get to the show. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Dustin. Today I'm here talking with Joe Pitosi, and he is the author of a book titled When the Dust Settled. And his book is about his journey uh, as a child through adolescence uh, dealing with child abuse uh, from his mother and stepfather and uh, also abandonment issues uh, from his biological father. So I'd like to introduce him now. Joe, how you doing? I'm doing very good. Thank you so much, Sean, for this opportunity. It's much appreciated. Not a problem, man. Not a problem. Uh, we 
we met, I think, I think I just, I think I may have, uh, run across your, uh, Facebook live, uh, deal talking about, uh, your book and your situation. I think it was something on Facebook that I was watching that kind of piqued my interest. And then I reached out to you, uh, and then, you know, asked, Hey, maybe you'd want to, uh, be a guest on my podcast. Yes. And I believe that this, how it all kind of went down and, <clears throat> People may ask, why do I even bother doing the podcast or, you know, radio or TV newspapers? Why do I even share my story? It's because I want to help people. And I don't know if a lot of people know this, Sean, but let's face the facts. There are, there are a lot of men that don't open up and kind of get stuff off their chest, so to speak, in order to not only help others, but the health themselves. Because what I discovered is, is that by sharing my story, it's helped a lot of people immensely. And, but it's helped me just as much, if not more. And I could, I can't really explain the ins and outs of all of that. I just know it does something for me. You know, it, um, it just helps me. Helps me become stronger as a man and as a father and as a survivor. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. There is a, uh, uh, a saying in the 12 step program that you can't keep what you have unless you give it away. And so by helping other people, and I feel, I feel the same way that you're, you're telling your truth and you're helping to cleanse your own soul and your own spirit, if you want to call it that, but you're helping to cleanse yourself of, of the things in your past. And you're also allowing other people to, to listen to your story and maybe relate and maybe they're going through the same thing and, and they realize that, Hey man, I'm not alone. Maybe I should, you know, I can talk to somebody about it as well. Absolutely. Sean, that's exactly the thought I just had, you're not alone. Although we feel alone, we feel like we've been abandoned, literally, figuratively, or whatever the case is. And so therefore, we don't put ourselves out there and seek that help. You know, there's a stigma. <clears throat> um, you know, why would I go to counseling? Why would I, you know, get put on uh, depression medicine? Men, real men don't do these types of things. And that's such a misconception, right? And you, you discover by, you know, going to seek help and, or talking to like a small group of people you trust that it's extremely therapeutic and it can really help you. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think that perception, um, I mean, you know, Matt, what it is to be a, a man – you know, I don't know. You're you're in the Midwest. I I come from uh, from California, which is a little bit more progressive. And 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 you know, I'm I'm from the Bay Area, so you know, we. I, I guess I was raised in a more uh, melting pot kind of uh, situation, but I mean, I still my my father was a uh, was a cop, uh, you know, and he's kind of hard, you know, hard hard line, tough love uh, kind of guy, and you know, it's just you just you know, guys don't cry this, that, you know, and it's really, 
not the most uh let me say the mo- it's not the most accurate way of of becoming a productive uh individual as far as like understanding you know emotions and having emotional intelligence and being able to identify problems that you have with yourself and how to kind of mitigate that or or dissect it and and just kind of figure out well, okay, well why do I do these things you know did it did it come from you know this did it come from that and once you identify them okay well how do I change them because if you're the same person you were a year ago you're not doing it right right you know cuz nobody's perfect we all kind of grew up in in you know with, with sort of a screwed up situation unless you were a trust fund kid and grew up as a as a rich kid but even they got they got their own issues you know so yep. nobody's perfect you know we're all here trying to just be better people than we were yesterday and if you're not then you're just a shithead you know you said something very key Sean, that I want to really start off my talk with and that you said if you're now different a year from now or let's say five years or 10 years 10 years from now you're still struggling with the things you were struggling with 10 years prior you know you're not progressing that's why i say this this is what i want to say your condition does not have to be your conclusion so in my case being a a survivor of traumatic um, long, severe child abuse, you know, statistics say I'm going to be that person when I become a father. You know, I'm going to be, um, you know, I'm going to be just like them. It's called learned behavior. I'm going to be, you know, a waste of space or whatever. But I made a, a conscious decision that my condition, what I had experienced and what I went through, which includes CPTSD, PTSD, anxiety, depression that all came, was brought on by what I suffered as a child, does not define me. Does not, it's like if I had cancer, the cancer does not define who I am. I refuse to let my past and my, how it affected me even as an adult control my life. I made a choice to make changes. And I want to get to that. But before I do, you mentioned California. I was stays, I was in the Navy. I was stationed in San Diego. However, I didn't get to spend much time in San Diego. But when I did, I loved the beach, of course. And uh, we made a trip to San Francisco. I had an uncle that lived there. So it was nice to be able to live at his place for two weeks instead of living on a ship. And I have to admit, I live in San Diego. I live in LA. I live in Philadelphia. I live in Memphis. San Francisco is different. It's a lot different than any big city I lived in, you know? I'm not saying it's bad or it's good. I'm just saying it's different. It's exciting. You know, this was years ago, but um, I got to experience the Chinese New Year parade and all that. It's really cool. Anyway, if you want me to get started on the story, I could now. Or Yeah, yeah. Do you have something? No, no, that, okay. that's fine. Yeah, tell the tell our listeners that uh, you know, give us your story, what you experienced. Um, I mean, I, if you want to go into details, I don't. I mean, I don't know if you want to do that. Um, you know, the, as far as like you know, the kind of abuse, uh, whether it was mental, physical, sexual. You know, what I mean, that's up to you. What you want to what you want to divulge um, in in yeah. your in your message. 
Yeah. So um, I was around the age of three, three and a half. It was uh, my earliest memory. Um, and at that time, I had a sister. She was a year older than myself. My mom was pregnant with my brother, Marty. And my father was with us at this time. And we lived in a really dilapidated apartment. I remember we didn't have very much as far as food or toys, but we had each other. Well, as it turned out, um, there was a housing project in the neighborhood that was relatively new that my parents got accepted into. And for us, it was like an improvement. It was like a step up because, you know, most people are trying to hurry and get out of the projects. But for us, it was um, definitely an upgrade because of our pres- our situation at the time. So we moved into these projects and my mother had just had my brother Greg or Marty and um, they both liked to drink um, alcohol. But all, all these people in the neighborhood started coming around, um, coming over drinking and, you know, partying all hours of the night. My mom and dad began to argue a lot more and fight from what I can remember. And then one day my dad left. And the day he left, there was this guy named Tyrone that was always at the house playing cards, drinking with my parents. He came to, and he came to the house later that day through the back door. And eventually this man became my stepfather. Now in the seventies, let me, let me rephrase this. So, you know, I'm not a, I don't treat people any differently because you're the color of your skin, you know, because you may be um, from Samoa or you may be from, say, Dominican Republic or Africa. In fact, I work with a lot of students from all over the world at a local university. And I have this value. I treat a person by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. But this is the catch. How can you treat them by their character if you don't give them a chance? I say all that to say this. My stepdad is a black man. Obviously, my mom is a white woman. And in the 70s, a white woman and a black man being together as a couple was really not accepted, especially by my extended family uh, from Dubuque, Iowa. So I didn't mention before, but I lived in Rockford, Illinois at this time, which is about an hour from Chicago. We lived in the projects. You know, my mom was dating this black man, and eventually she had two sons to him. Many people in our extended family shunned us even more because of this fact, the fact that she was with a black guy. But what happened in a really rapid succession was once my dad left, everything, you know, the fact that we had no food, the fact that my mother was being beaten by my stepfather, um, was me and my sister's fault. Everything was me and my sister's fault. Now, mind you, me and my sister were just young kids, right? And at this stage, my mother had uh, her fourth child, my brother Greg. So there's four kids that me and my sister were were fending for infant brothers. They're only 11 months apart, changing their diapers, feeding them, caring for them. You say, why? Because my mom was too preoccupied with drinking getting high, entertaining the neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. And whenever things didn't go her way, when she would get intoxicated, she would 
lash out at me and my sister, in particular me, because, and I'm going to tell you why, my stepdad, and I remember, my stepdad knew my father. As it turned out, I found out years later, he befriended my father to get access to my mother. And in fact, they were having an affair behind my father's back. And when my dad found out, he didn't know how to deal with it. He didn't have the coping skills. Apparently, he left. He didn't leave to a different part of town and, you know, would see us occasionally once a week. He left, left. He didn't give us a dime over the years. Only time I would see him would be in the summers. I'd, I'd be allowed to go to Dubuque, Iowa, where he's from, and I'd go to his parents' house, and somehow, some way, they would get in touch with him, and I would see my dad. Now, you have to remember, my dad was my hero, right? I loved my father, and I loved my mother, but my dad was, he was like the Lone Ranger in my mind. And he was going to come back, and he was going to beat up the bad guy, in this case, Tyrone, and he was going to come together, and we were going to be a family again. Because from the time he left, I saw my mother beaten physically by my stepdad. He broke a jaw, broke a collarbone. He kicked her face, ripped her face open. But not only that, my stepdad would beat me and my brother Greg in particular. My mom would work second shift and his idea, he would lock us in the basement. My stepdad would until it was time for dinner. Or if he decided to let me and my sister go to the community center, he would let us go. Um, for a few hours when we come back, help with the kids, and then, you know, we go to bed. Now, you see, my stepdad didn't work. I want to fast forward a little bit. Um, but his idea of entertainment was he liked to, he, my stepfather loved to embarrass me in front of his friends. Oftentimes, you know, he was a big boxing fan, and I liked boxing. I loved Ali, and I liked Frazier. He would like to um, humiliate me in front of his friends and my brothers. Um, we're ordered at this point. Maybe I should get to that story later. But he he had he had a knack for just picking on me. You know, there was a bully in the schoolyard. There's a bully on the block. We know this, right? And the bully I had to deal with was in the four walls in which I lived. That was my bully. And I, I was terrified to go home every day. Most kids drug their feet going to school. Not me. No, no, no. School was my safe place. School was where I knew I wasn't going to get beaten by my mom or my stepdad for no apparent reason. And when I say beaten, I don't mean a few swats on the butt. No. He, my stepdad had a cord from an iron he would use or a wooden paddle. Uh, you went, you hit the uh, mute. Sorry about that, buddy. Are we we good? Yep, yep. So you so, use a paddle, or do you use the, uh, the 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 cord from the cord. Uh, iron? Yes, sir. So, and well, I wasn't suffering abuse from him. This is what my mom would like. This is what she liked to do. Now we're still in the projects, right? She liked to get drunk. This happened at least twice that I can remember. And she would run a, a, a bathtub, you know, full of water. 
And I, I remember one time it woke me up. There was steam bellowing out in the hallway. And I figured she was going to take a bath. So I go to, you know, I can tell she's drunk. And I'm like, Mom, what are you doing? You getting ready to take a bath? Don't don't slip, you know. She goes, no, you little cocksucker. She goes, and she's dragging, you know, she's taking hits from a cigarette. She goes, she goes, she goes no, you little cocksucker. And she grabbed me and threw me in this tub. I mean, the water was so unbearable hot. She was so strong, I couldn't get away from her. And who came and rescued me? My stepdad, believe it or not. And that was the only time he ever did. But anyway, these are the types of things I dealt with. When I was in third grade, though, because my mom, she did work like a dog when she chose to work. And my stepdad didn't work. And we had six kids by this point. She has six kids. Um, I got my first job at a local uh, restaurant, sweeping the parking lot. Two bucks every Saturday, and I'll give that money to my mother. And I wanted to make a difference because you see, it was ingrained in me by this point. Everything was my fault. The reason we don't have any food was my fault. The reason he would beat her into a bloody pulp was my fault. I'm a piece of garbage. I'm worthless, just like my father. You know, I'm the scum of the earth. I'm a piece of crap. So I figured if I work and make money, Maybe I wouldn't be a piece of crap anymore. Maybe I wouldn't be like my dad, like, you know, useless and shiftless and, you know, whatever. And so I'd give her the money and, but nothing changed. You know, and for the last several years at this point, my stepdad said, we're going to move out of the projects. We're going to move out of the projects. Well, eventually that did happen. And we moved. It's kind of funny and ironic. We moved out of the projects into our actual house on the west side of Rockford, Illinois, right behind a different set of projects. So <laughs> it was, uh, you know, out of the projects, but not really out of the projects, sort of. So we have, you're, you're in project light. <laughs> right. You know, they, there's an adage for all of us that have ever lived in the projects. They say you can move out of the projects, but they can't move the projects out of you, which means the idea is the mentality of living in that kind of a lifestyle. But we would joke about it because we never really moved out of the projects, you know? I don't know if that, make, that makes sense. No, so we moved, into the, we moved into these, this house. It was like a walkout ranch. All the, all the boys' bedroom, now there's five boys. Our bedrooms were downstairs in the basement. There was two bedrooms. There was a toilet. That's where the washer and dryer was. There was like a little rec room. With, we had a little black and white TV. My sister's room was upstairs right across from my mom and stepdad's. So a new house, I thought in my mind, you know, I, I'm going into the fifth grade. A new house, a new beginning. Now, you may say to yourself, or your listeners may say to yourself, how does this kid only being, you know, just finished fourth grade, think this way or act this way. People don't understand. Me and my sister had to grow up really, really fast mentally. And we didn't have a childhood. You know, our childhood consisted of babysitting my mother. She'll get drunk. Me and my sister would have to clean her up physically and help her to, to bed. Not to mention caring for our other brothers. 
And that was our life, man. So I got a paper route job because, again, my stepdad still does not work. And my mom was working the second shift at Eclipse, a local factory. Um, but the pattern stayed the same. You know, we started school. Once all of us boys were home, you know, there was a, a, a what he would, my stepfather would make us do was grab crackers, like saltine crackers, cheese slices, and like water, if you want something to drink. And once all of us, all of us boys got to the basement, you know, we all got off of school. We were sent to the basement. He locked us in the basement until he, he saw fit to let us upstairs. Now, you think, okay, what's the point? The point is, oftentimes, three to four times a week, he would leave the house. My mom would be at work, and he would leave us locked in the basement for hours. And it dawned on me after, like, the third time of this happening, what if there was a fire? or another emergency, we had no way to get out of that basement, right? And the only time he let us up was for dinner. And then we'd take our baths, our baths upstairs, get cleaned up, do our chores upstairs, and to, to the basement we went. And I remember one time I was on the show and they said, did your mother know about all this? Absolutely she knew about it. She was a participant. She even on the weekends they locked us in the basement when we weren't playing outside, and you know they were in the house drinking and they wanted to be bothered by us to the basement we went, and that's where they kept us, and that's how it was. So I got this paper out, and through this paper out, I got a lot of snow shoveling jobs, which means I made I made I made a lot of money right for a young kid just in fifth grade. And I gave most of the money to my mom, but I would stash money because I wanted to play organized baseball. And I just wanted to have money for myself. But what I, what I started to do was I would go to. You're muted again. Jesus, I'm sorry, Sean. I'm so sorry, man. Oh, you're good. You're good. Um, I would go to a local drugstore and I would buy my mother like a coffee mug because she loved coffee, right? She loved that instant coffee. And (laughs) I would buy my stepdad his favorite candy. Now you say, why are you doing that? Uh, I did it since I was in third grade. Ever since I had money to do it, I was trying to buy their acceptance. I thought if I made them happy with candy or a coffee mug or a rug from my mother's kitchen, they would start treating me like a human, right? Hopefully... You know, things would change, but they never did. And, you know, all these years, Sean, all these years, this is going to sound crazy, but I have to say this. I used to dream I could fly, and I would fly from Rockford, Illinois, to Dubuque to go see my dad. I would spend every night with him, and I would fly back in the morning just before I had to go to school. I know that sounds nuts and crazy, but that was my reality, man. I missed him that much, right? So, um, in short order, you know, my stepdad started taking the money from my mother that I was giving my mom for the home, for the bills, etc. I quit the paper out. Now, this pretty much everything I've shared with you was in the book, but I'm just trying to 
not go into much detail because you know it's it's a lot deeper. But anyway, yeah, you don't want to give away give away the whole book. No. So essentially, I quit the paper out, and my stepfather confronted me, and he asked me why, and I didn't really have an answer. And he pulled his thirty eight on me and pulled the trigger, and I instantly peed my pants as I ran down the stairs. Obviously, you know, it was Russian roulette. I didn't know that, you know. I'm a little kid. He poses his beloved gun on me and pulls the trigger. What am I supposed to think? It's a game? He was mad at me for quitting the job. And um, he, he began to really single me out even more than he had my whole existence with him. And I mentioned before how he liked to humiliate me in front of his friends. And I mentioned how he loved to watch boxing, as did I. Um, He started this pattern where he would have all my brothers and myself coming to his study. He had a big uh, floor council TV. He would sit on a folding chair. I think it was a folding chair. And he, he used to drink a fifth of brandy a day, right? And he would instruct me to take off my shirt. And I'll be standing in front of him. I don't know what was going to happen. And my brothers were watching, you know, looking on. And he was saying, I'm going to show you boys how you throw a punch. And so he would instruct, he would instruct me to punch him in the chest. My stepdad is 6'5", 350, right? He's a big man. He was like a giant to me, you know, being a little kid. So I attempted to punch him in the chest, and he's like, that's a slap. I'm going to show you how you do it. And he punched me in my chest so hard that I lost my balance, fell back against the TV, busted my head open. And that was just one example of how he liked to humiliate me. And when I, my head was busted open, I was bleeding all over do you think for a second he even cared to check on my welfare? No. That's that's life, right? So the abuse at the hands of my mother and stepfather never changed either. I mean, uh, when we got in trouble or when my stepfather was not happy about, when I go to Dubuque, for an example, there is a golden rule in the family, or there was. You never, ever, ever tell people about our business in this house. Never. But guess what? I was so desperate for help and I was crying out to help to the school, to my extended family. But guess what? Nobody did anything to help us. And when I would sit at my grandparents' house and my dad would be there and they would sit me down and say, so what's going on, Joey? I mean, what's really going on at your house? I'll tell them everything. And then that fateful day would come when I had to take the bus back to Radford. And when I would get picked up and they took me home, I got beat by because I essentially told my family, asking them, the people I love, help. We need help. You know, this man is beating my mother all the time. He beats my sister, my brother, myself. And they said, we're afraid for our lives. But instead of my family and others 
calling social services or the police. They would call my mom and stepdad on the phone and cuss them out. And they would threaten to blow my stepdad's head off. You know, they would use not so flattering language toward my stepfather, calling him all these derogatory names. And, you know, Dubuque, I was like over two hours away from Rockford. And, you know, I remember one time he drove up there in like 40 minutes because they challenged him to meet at the bridge. They were going to kill him. He showed up. But since they didn't show up, what he did was he took out his frustration out on us. You know, the fact that it was my family, the fact that I'm the one that initiated all of this by telling people our business. So, you know, essentially that's basically (laughs) how it went. So after seventh grade, um, I got to once again go to Dubuque, Iowa, but my mom pulled me aside and said, you're not coming back to Rockford. Take all your clothes. Essentially, what happened was I get to to Dubuque, Iowa, my grandparents' house. My mom calls and says, I'm leaving your stepdad. I need you to find us an apartment. So here I am, 13, you know, calling. I called like 50 different landlords trying to find a place. And my grandma's like, no one's going to believe you. You're just a little kid. I'm like, I have to try. As it turned out, I found us an apartment. My mom moved up there with my siblings. But it was short-lived. She got us evicted. Essentially, we went back to Rockford, back to the monster. And for a day or two, he was treating us really nice. He was even treating my mom really nice. But that was the end of it, right? So, um, but what happened was uh, his abuse to my mom really, really intensified to the point that Almost a year at almost mm, about a year and a half from the time we went back, we left him again. But this time we went to a better woman's shelter in Rockford, Illinois, where we stayed for about two or three months and eventually got in an apartment. And we're finally away from the monster, my stepdad. We're finally away from him. And my mom will start to treat me and my sister the way she used to treat us when we were young kids. She would start to love us again and, you know, just shower us with affection. My dad would come back and we'd be a happy family again. That never happened. In fact, the thing with my mom, her drinking intensified. She started having, was seeing all these different random guys. Her physical abuse toward me and my sister intensified to the point, Sean. Now listen to this. It was so bad. My two youngest brothers, technically my stepbrothers, lived with us. They didn't live with their father, right? Their father would come and pick them up for visitations once a week, I believe it was. But anyway, things were so bad living with my mother. I asked my stepfather, this person who hated me, this person that beat me, if I looked at him the wrong way, this person that kept me locked away, I asked him if I can live with him. Imagine that. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, you know what they say, man, hurt people, hurt people. You know, it's uh it's a, it's a vicious cycle, you know, whether it's it's, you know, physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse when you know, if, if who knows if that was done to them, 
uh, you know, or, or, you know, sometimes it's just a, a matter of, of, of power, having power over somebody, you know, because, you know, you what's because you go know, ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's, it's a matter of having power over somebody because at some point in your life, you didn't have power or somebody had power over you. So, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of different reasons why, why people do that, but you know, Hey man, I apologize that that, that, that happened to you, man. That's, that's gotta be, I, I've, I was never abused in that way. Uh, so I, I have no idea what it would be like, but I imagine it would be horrible. And, uh, I'm sorry you had to go through that. Thank you, bro. I'm going to tell you something, man. I had to make a decision. So I joined the Navy. I joined 362 days before I could actually go to boot camp. And it was all set up because of my hard work. I was all set up to graduate first semester. I was going to turn 18 January 10th. I was going to graduate the next day. Two weeks later, I'm going to be in Chicago, Illinois in January, freezing my nuts off. But I was going to be away from the greatest tormentor in my whole life, my own mother. So what happened was she decided to move back to Dubuque, Iowa. And I thought that was cool at first because I'd be closer to my extended family. Maybe dad will be back around. What happened was or Iowa wouldn't accept a lot of my credits. They essentially said, you have to go a full year. And I was already committed to the military. I couldn't do that. Luckily, there was a local high school. It was called an alternative high school, Central. Um, and this is where a lot of the kids that have dropped out or a lot of kids that like to fight and get in trouble, truant kids, would go. So it had a bad reputation. However, this alternative high school realized the work I put in and that my credits from Illinois had value. They were legitimate. So they accepted all my credits. I needed two credits to graduate. I took English and sociology. And I'll say this about the school. I absolutely loved it. I was on honor roll. Uh, I took two classes, English and sociology. And what I loved about sociology, I learned so much about the Vietnam War and the Vietnam veterans. Just getting ready to go into the military myself, I was really hungry to learn more and more. And I interviewed all these different veterans and had to ask them these really, really tough questions. But the book was published. It went to the White House. It went to uh, all over the place, right? And it was one of my greatest accomplishments. We did that as a team, you know, as a class or whatever. But when I wasn't in school, I went from like 7.30 until 10, I think. I would go up to the YMCA, lift weights, work out, try to get really, really ready for boot camp. And I mentally, I was ready. So that day finally came. Actually, about a month before it came, you know, my dad was back in the scene, my father. However, he was living in the rescue mission. He was a helpless, hopeless alcoholic. And the only time he would come around is when he was drunk. And I played I played interference. In other words, I went I refused to let him be around my four kid brothers when he was in that state of mind. You say why? He was away from his kids for all those years. Well, he don't know his two youngest sons because Greg was still in the womb when he left. And Marty, his other son, was just a little infant. 
the only father they knew was my stepdad. They didn't know their real father. So since we were all subjected to being around my mom and stepdad in the drunken stupor for years and what the uh, what they would do as a result, how he would beat her, how he would beat us, I wouldn't I was not gonna let my kids be subjected or my kid brothers to be subjected to another individual coming into our lives that's not in the right state of mind that does dumb things. No way. No freaking way. So came over one time and I, I I came real close to beating the crap out of him because he was so aggressive. But he left. But I was so upset. This is my hero since I was a little boy. I was devastated. I was crushed. So what do I do? I go to his sister's house, who was one of my favorite aunts. Um, her name was Grace. And she sat me down. And she, she is the one that explained to me that he, my mother had an affair behind his back and he didn't have the coping skills and that he literally became a hobo when he left, when he left the family. He would actually catch rail cars all over the Midwest. He'd go to Denver, Colorado. He would go to Memphis, Tennessee. He'd go to Milwaukee, Des Moines, Lincoln, Nebraska, Omaha. He would stay in his rescue missions, work, make a little money to get drunk. And he was doing all this because he couldn't, he didn't know how to cope with the fact that his life was destroyed, right? And she shared me, she shared with me some other details I saw in the book. Um, but listen, Sean, it was at this point that this this anger and this resentment and this unforgiveness for my father left. It just left. Because I then understood. I understood. I got it. And I think my dad was trying to make amends. I think he was trying to make an effort to make up for lost time, but he couldn't do it without the use of alcohol at that point in his life. My point is this, Sean. On that day, I found the ability to forgive my father completely and fully. And it was like a million pounds lifted off my chest. chest. So the day... And I only seen him once after that before I went to boot camp. And we had a really long talk. And, you know, we we restarted our relationship that became a beautiful one. So I, I the day I go into the boot camp, I have to get the city bus down to the Greyhound bus station. I'm waiting for the city bus. And my mom comes out on the front stairs. I remember it's in January in Illinois or Iowa. It's really cold. And she starts screaming from the top of her lungs. And this is this is the common theme. She's always said since I joined the Navy when I was still in high school, you're never going to make it. You're a piece of shit, just like your father. You're worthless. You're shiftless. And just remember one thing, cocksucker, you can never come back here to live. So that was my send-off. <laughs> that was my send-off, dude. That's I a- get to boot camp. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So that's that, that crab bucket mentality, man. You know how they try to, you know, when you ever see crabs and they're trying to get out of a bucket and you got the other one trying to keep them, pulling them down. Absolutely. You know, she, that's you know, she, right, just, man. she just didn't want you to make something of yourself. Cause then, you know what I mean? How, how are you going to, how are you going to go and do something and be somebody and, and, and leave me here to be nothing? Exactly. That's exactly right. So, you know, Sean, up until this point, Physically, I'm top-notch shape. 
I memorized my 11 general orders, chain of command, you know. But obviously, I'm an 18-year-old kid. I'm nervous about the unknown. I go to boot camp. It was eight weeks long. And I, I got to tell you, they could never say or do anything to me worse than what my mother did to me. It was laughable. I'm like, you got to be freaking kidding me. You guys, my mother, four, all four foot 11, was more brutal and more vicious and more vindictive than all you guys combined. And then I had my stepdad to deal with. Boot camp was so, I, you know why? It's a mental game. What they do is, obviously it's physical, but they break you down. So if you go to boot camp and you're all snooty and, you know, you've bones and silver spoon in your mouth, you think you're better than everybody else, you think you know it all, they break that down and they rebuild you into the Marine or the sailor they want you to be, right? Well, Sean, I was already broke down. I couldn't be broke down any further. So whatever they – I mean, I followed their orders. I did what they told me. And you know what I'm saying? but they couldn't they couldn't break me they couldn't you know so a lot of guys couldn't make it in boot camp they got kicked out or they just quit but for me it was like it was like a walk in the park and you said something before i think i need to elaborate on so you know the crab bucket pulling people down somebody might be listening and they say well why didn't all those people in the projects or your neighbors or your family call social services you know in the projects, I need to explain something. There was drug dealers, there was gang members, there was prostitutes. My stepdad was the ringleader of all of them, right? There were some really hardcore dudes in the projects. I mean, really hardcore dudes. But they're all afraid of my stepdad. And nobody messed with us. Not, no one messed with the white kids, Tyrone's kids, because they don't want to have to face the wrath of Tyrone. And it's funny because he would always say, yeah, not not nobody put a hand on y'all. No, nobody put a hand on us but you. Nobody heard us but you and our mother. You know? So the reason these people were so terrified they weren't going to call the cops or social services, no freaking way. You know, my stepdad, after we left him, he was trying to get into his mother's apartment. And she was in the apartment watching soap operas or whatever. You know those sliding glass doors that, you know, many people have like on their back door? Yeah, he yeah. put his arm he put his arm through one of those trying to get to his own mother. Yeah, you know, in a in a lot of times in in situations like that in the projects, man, what you're going through and what was happening in your household was probably happening in quite a few households it's not it wasn't just you know what i mean it's just kind of that type of that type of behavior sort of breeds in in those in those depressed areas man because you just got a lot of a lot of a lot of unhappy people and they've got to you know it's got to come out somewhere you are exactly 100 percent right sean a lot of my friends didn't have a dad or didn't have a mother or a father. They stayed with their grandmother. And a lot of those kids dealt with dysfunction too. But they didn't tell people. 
You know, it's like unwritten rule. You, you don't, even your friends, you don't tell them what happens because if you did, you had hell to pay. So I get through boot camp. I go to school. I get stationed in San Diego. Um, I was in the Persian Gulf, Iraq. <laughs> I was in Africa twice, the Philippines. So I've been literally around the world. I made two Westpacs and end up back in Philadelphia. I get out of the Navy with honorable discharge. But when I was in the Navy, um, I, I, need to t- I need to say this to your audience. Um, I made a promise to my grandfather, my paternal grandfather. He was in the Navy during World War II, so that's why I chose the Navy, because he was my hero, right? I promised my grandparents I wouldn't be the typical sailor, you know, the one who gets drunk, that likes to fight, um, that womanize, you know, you go to these different countries and you get with all these women prostitutes or whatever. And that's exactly what I became. And I'm going to tell you why. When I got to San Diego, um, although I found the ability to forgive my father, right? Um, because I love my mother, I assume by default I forgave her, right? And my stepfather, I just straight out hated him, all right? So, I didn't know how to deal with it because my whole life I watched how my mom and stepdad dealt with everyday life. The way my stepdad dealt with conflict is with his fists. The way they dealt with paying their bills and being responsible was bouncing checks. The way that they would, you know, just carry on in life was not right, you know? So I found myself, I turned to alcohol. I mean, I had these guys I worked with would go to the beach and, you know, everyone was drinking Budweiser and I felt like I'd ball out, you know, if I didn't. And I discovered by drinking it took away the pain because I was in a lot of pain mentally, emotionally, right? And it took it away for that day. And before long, a bad pattern started where I drank a lot. Um, and I like to get into a lot of fights and I get they dubbed me Clink Dog. And I mean, I went as far as getting a tattoo on my arm, Bulldog. And I mean, I, I, I had a reputation to upkeep, to keep up. And, you know, I, I was just notorious, man, right? So when I get out of the Navy, that pattern continued because I was still kidding around anger, unforgiveness, resentment toward my mom and stepdad. And I didn't know how to deal with it. But I knew when I drank, I felt better. It took away the pain, took away the tears. But now this is hard to talk about, but I need to talk about it. I'm working on a second book, so I can't, I can't and I won't share a lot of details. But I'll just say that what I'm about to share really happened. And um, it's only by God's grace so I'm at where I'm at today. So my drinking, you know, caused me to lose my house, my job, my car. I ended up homeless. So in 1994, I just lost my job, broke up with a girlfriend. My father, of all people, he's back in our lives again. I mean, he's still drinking, but, you know, our relationship is a much, much better place. He says, why don't you go to Dubuque, Iowa? So I took his advice, and that's where I met my wife. Um, and shortly after there, after that, I became a Christian. And we got married in September of 96. In 98, found out we're going to have, a, you know, my wife's going to have a baby. 
And then it was at that point in my life that I started having these dreams and nightmares about what I went through as a kid. Now you have to understand, I, I thought that, you know, by the, by loving my mom, I, you know, I've released her, but I really didn't. And I know I didn't release my stepdad. In fact, my stepdad got remarried in the fall of 94. His two sons asked me to be in the wedding party. And a lot of my extended family, I'm going to use some graphic language, but this is what they said. How in the hell can you be a part of that nigga's wedding? I'm like, first of all, I'm talking to a nigger. Nigger means ignorant, and you're extremely ignorant. Second of all, for me, those are my two brothers. And they asked me to be in the wedding for them. I'm not doing this for their dad. I'm doing it for them. But selfishly, I thought, thirdly, it would be closure for me. I can finally have them out of my life. Guess what happened? I didn't find closure. But in 98, when I knew I was going to be a father, and listen, Sean, I never wanted kids because I was so afraid of something called learned behavior. Yeah, that's what I was going to, that's, that's what I was going to, I was going to ask. I mean, I, maybe that, uh, you know, you're having those nightmares and everything is just because it's not, you were, you were afraid that you would be the same kind of father that your stepfather was and your mother was to you. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's like, you know, you did, you, you know, a lot. It's, so when people are abused, whether it's mental, physical, sexual, you know, that's why you see uh, them carrying it out themselves to the, to, to other victims, because you know what I mean? They, you, you have to be willing to break that cycle and, uh, and, and, and deal with the issues. Man, Sean, you are so right, man. You are right on point, man. You're an extremely intelligent individual. And you get it. You understand it. And um, so I mentioned I was a relatively new Christian. And when I say Christian, I don't mean, I mean, that's a loose term. I I put my trust in Jesus Christ. I was a born-again believer. And I was on fire for God. And I was struggling. Now, you have to understand. So I became this Christian. And the drinking I was doing, all that, I stopped. My whole life changed. And I give credit, all credit to God. And by the way, Sean, I'm in the 12-step program. I don't know if you are or you're just familiar with them. So the drinking and my stinking thinking, all that dissipated, right? I got, I put myself in treatment. and. I got into a solid group, got a sponsor, et cetera, et cetera. And all that was a part of my recovery. Anyway, um, not an audible voice, but in my heart, my mind, God kept telling me, I have forgiven you. Who are you not to forgive? Now, you have to understand, my mom and dad would come to Dubuque once in a while. They both were still drinking. And in fact, my father lived with my mother. He rented out a bedroom. They were just good friends. They became best friends. And he would pay her so much money a month. He stayed with her for like seven years. Um, but when my mom would come to town, I would try to roll to the red carpet. I was still trying to buy her acceptance, right? I still want her to like me, but I was never good enough. 
I was never, ever, ever good enough. And that really, that, that hurt me. Anyway, guy kept saying, I've forgiven you. Let it go. Forgive them. And on one particular day, I made a conscious choice to forgive my mother completely and fully. To forgive and let go of the unforgiveness, resentment, anger, hatred. My stepfather, I let it go. He's no longer in space in my mind. And I'll tell you something, Sean, it set me free, dude. And when my son was born, guess what? My mother took a back seat. My priority is not trying to please my mother, roll through red carpet. My priority are my kids. And I have two sons today, Sean. That's cool, I get man. emotional. Congratulations, I get, man. Thank you. I get emotional when I say this part, though, dude. I get really emotional. I have two sons, 19 and 21. And guess what? I've broken that cycle. They don't know what it's like to be in the basement locked up. They don't know what it's like to be abandoned. They don't know what it's like to be beaten to a pulp. They don't know what it's like to be told every day you're worthless, you're garbage. No, I've broken that cycle. And that's my legacy, man. And if I was to die tonight, my dash, for me, that's my greatest legacy is my sons. And even to this day, man, I have a son. The oldest son is a junior at the university. My younger, 19-year-old, he works in construction like yourself. They both live at home. It ain't nothing for, you know, every day they'll come up to me and they'll say, they call me Dada. I need a hug, Dada. Love you, Dada. And do you know what that does for me? You know what that does for them? It's huge, man. That's got to be awesome, man. I, 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 I totally relate to you, man. And not, dude, that's awesome that you were able to break that cycle, man, because a lot of people can't. You're right. A lot of people can't. And this has never been about me. I believe it's about God working in and through me. Am I a perfect father? Absolutely not. I've had my share of struggles, man. But my kids were my priority. The You know, they were, I, I don't know how to describe this, describe this any other way. Just, I was really, really like uber to be, I, I, I just was obsessed with doing the best I can. Do I, not, I mean, do I have all the answers for my kids when they had questions? No. Will my kid would fall off his bike and skin his knee? Why was I able to fix it? No. But I was able to comfort him and tell him I love him and tell him that everything was going to be all right, son. It's going to be okay. And that's what life is about, man. I need to mention one thing, though. And you hit on this before. You see, my mom, my stepdad, and my father all had extremely traumatic childhoods themselves. However, that did not give them the right to do what they did. Now, not, not, that's not an excuse. Everything I went through, so that can be my excuse. I'm going to do to my kids what was done to me. If, if, if that would have been me, I, I wish somebody would have shot me and killed me because no one, no one should be subjected to that type of abuse. And that's why today I'm an advocate and advisor for 
uh, ambassador for children. I, I'm an ambassador for NASCA. And I want to be that voice for the kids coming up today. Because what's going on in the world in which we live, these kids are like a commodity. You know, they're being bought and sold by these people, these pedophiles. These people or these kids are treated like a piece of, you know, like a thing. And I tell you, man, because of all the stuff I suffered as a kid, yeah, I have PTSD, CPTSD, depression, anxiety, but I found coping skills to deal with all those things, right? And my condition has not become my conclusion. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, perfect sense. I mean, and I'm telling you, Sean, and I'm telling everyone, your condition doesn't have to be your conclusion. I'm going to give you an example. I shared my example. Now, let me share one that's maybe more relevant or more people can relate to. I had skin cancer, right? Maybe, Sean, let's just pretend you came down with, I don't know, let's say you had uh, kidney cancer, right? Let's just suppose. First of all, that cancer does not determine who you are. Second of all, you're still sucking air. So you survived it, right? You got through the cancer. That cancer did not become your conclusion. I don't know if that's making sense, but. Um, yeah, it makes absolute sense. I mean, I, I, I went to prison and I did all these, you know, things and, you know, the, the, my, my situation may be something that I've went through but it doesn't have anything to do with who I am. It may have shaped my character to a certain extent, but am, you know, it, it, it didn't have anything to do with the person that I am today. My choices and who I choose to be determines and, and who, who I am as a, as a person, not, not the situations and the, and the experiences that I've been through. They helped to shape. That's awesome. a, yeah. They helped to shape a little bit of, of that, but I mean, it's, you know, the reason why I am who I am today and I imagine why you are who you are today is you've, you've taken a look inside of you as a person and, you know, the things that didn't work for you or don't work for you or that you didn't want to be or, you know, carry out, you've actively worked on that. But you have to, you, you have to know what you don't want to be in order to become who you want to be. Exactly. You know what, Sean? I volunteered. I've worked with kids since I was 11th grade in high school, right? And presently, I volunteer at the Y. I, I help coach basketball. Um, this is what I want to say to all you listeners, men and women alike. Listen, man, this is the reality of everything. There are so many people who have experienced what I experienced, but much, much worse these young boys and girls that are being brought up in a situation where, you know, it's so bad, so awful. And they have, they have no role models, no male role models or female role models, but in this case, male. And what happens is the cycle continues and the black culture is called the slave mentality. Right. Um, And so these kids carry on the traditions or, of the cycle of abuse, of alcoholism, drug abuse, because that's what they saw their mom and dad do. That's what they know. I want to challenge you, Sean, and everyone who's listening. And maybe you guys are already doing this. I don't know. And if you are, thank you. An hour a month of your time. 
I'm big on kids, right? But if you want to go to the adults, like to a rescue mission, donate an hour a month of your time because you never know how much that impacts people. It can make a difference in people's lives. Because, listen, I hear people bitleaking all the time about these young kids feeling so entitled and feeling so this and so that. What are you doing to make a difference? Now, you may say, well, I don't have kids or I'm busy with my own kids. Well, that's even better. Focus on your own kids. It needs to start at home, right? Your kids need to be taught these core values, this moral compass that we all have before they go into the real world, not to lie, not to steal, you know, to not cheat and try to get over on people. All these types of things. You know what I'm, you know what I'm trying to get across, right, Sean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You have to, you have to start at home. You have to raise children that you'd want to deal with as adults yourself. You know what I mean? So the kind of an adult that I want to deal with as an adult, that's the kind of child that I need to be raising to be that kind of an adult. Yes, sir. You know, it it all starts at home, man. But, you know, we've got, uh, there's so many things that are working against regular, average, everyday working, working class people. You know, whether it's the, the kind of media that is being, you know, whether it's like the Jay-Z's and Beyonce's and whatever culture, you know, rap culture stuff that's out there that our kids are, or that children are watching or, or young adults are watching that are being, you know, kind of programmed on how to treat women. You know, you see the Cardi B's and, the, you know, all these like... Kardashians and you know what I mean? It's, you've got all these media and influencers that are out there that are, are, are teaching our, our kids and, and, and adolescents of kind of not what, I mean, I, I don't want my daughter growing up looking at that kind of stuff and, and thinking that, you know, it's okay. I mean, uh, you watch the Kardashians and you've got, you know, they're, they're with unavailable men. You know, guys that are cheating on them and they just keep going back to them or going to other ones and they're, and they're putting that out publicly. And it's like, yes. it's almost like it's making it okay for, oh yeah, if your man cheats on you, it's all good. Don't worry. Just find another one or, you know, go ahead and choose un- emotionally unavailable men. It's all good. You know, you know, you know, Sean, and since you're speaking on that, that show, do you remember that show, 16 and Pregnant? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I mean, I remember when I first came out, how shocking that was. And I'm like, now it's like, no biggie. I remember the first Persian Gulf War. If, if you if you follow that, seeing some of the footage, you know, I, I was in the military for six years altogether, right? I saw some awful things. I saw people lose their lives, whatever. But when you see it on TV and it's kind of like in your face, you know, there's that kind of a shock factor at first. But when you get inundated with it every day, you become numb to it. Yeah, it just normalizes it. Exactly. And with that template, that's what's happened. And you're exactly, man, you are so right. They're normalizing. They're normalizing bad behavior. Exactly right. And it's not. 
and, and, you know, you have, as a parent, you have to know that, recognize it. Don't be lazy and don't let your kids watch that kind of shit, you know, and, You're right. and you know, teach them, teach them things that, that, and there's a lot of things that in the schools that they're not being taught, you know, the real truth about our history and, and, and things that have gone on, uh, that, you know, I thought there was this one meme that I saw and it said, instead of, instead of giving your child the life that you wish you would have had, teach your child the things that you wish you would have known. Wow. You know, like all of the information that you've, that you've realized, you know, in your life, you know, wh whether it's, you know, the, you know, the media and the corporate, corporate, corporatists and, and politicians are all in bed with each other, you know, teach them about that, how to distinguish, you know, bullshit from fact, how to navigate in this new media, uh, media, culture that we live in where you're being fed misinformation, disinformation. You have no idea what's true and what's not true. You're, that's, you're exactly right, man. It's like, who do you believe? You know, like with this whole political thing going on, it's like, really? I mean, you know, a few weeks ago, you hear this and you hear that. And it's like, uh, it's just insane, man. It really is. Well, the bottom line is, is you you have to really pay attention to what's happening. All right. So you've got, you've got the DNC trying to push Biden on everybody. Nobody wants Bernie because they're calling him a socialist, but okay. He's not a socialist. He's a democratic socialist, which is a little bit different from a socialist. I think people, when they say socialist, they think a communist. Um, and, and the, we have three people in the race still, but you don't hear about the third one who is Tulsi Gabbard, who's actually calling out the military industrial complex and the regime change wars and everything that these corporatists are, are, are in bed doing, you know, the military industrial complex or congressional military industrial complex, if you really want to call them, they're the ones that are giving all these politicians all of this money funneling cash in, into their, their elections or reelections, the people that want to play ball with them. And Tulsi Gabbard, who is actually a, a, a two tour Iraq veteran, uh, is calling it out saying, Hey man, these, the, these regime change wars are bullshit. We're spending millions, billions of dollars, you know, of, of taxpayer money are going to these, you know, Lockheed Martin, you know, all of these other, you know, corporate, entities that are funding these these uh you know people to get reelected because they're all just you know voting you know to go into to these these places like you know we just tried to have one with Iran but Iran was like, all right well we're not fucking with you uh but you know Iraq is a perfect example we go in and it's just it's just so these these military uh, vendors can keep making money on, on weapons and tanks and, and, and jets and ammunition and all of this stuff. And it's ridiculous yep. when we have, when we have huge problems at home. I mean, look at the, look at this, this new virus that's coming out right now or that's out right now. We are incapable of handling an outbreak of, of the type that is threatening to be right now. We're not, we're not capable of handling it. And that's insane, man. It's like, and I agree with you. 
it's insane because, you know, they like to say we're the world leader in this and world leader in that and we're the freest nation in the world. Let me let me just tell you this real quick. So three or four years ago, there was a group of Chinese scholars from Wuhan, China, that were here. Um, and they were studying. Long story short, I became good friends with them. They went back to Wuhan. And as you know, they've been under quarantine for like six, seven, eight weeks. And they've been sharing with me, you know, what they've done as a people and as a country. And even when they were here in China or here in the States, you know, thinking China is a communist country, they don't have the same freedoms we have, this and that. I learned a lot, man, that don't believe everything you hear. Yeah, it is a communist country, but they it isn't exactly what the press tells us or what the media wants us to know about China. For an example, and my eyes have been opened a little bit. I mean, China, you know, they are forcing these people, like in Wuhan, there's like 16 million people to stay in their homes or whatever. And they have the resources to um, th- turn these factories into hospitals, like within not months, but days, you know. I, I was just seeing the video that they sent me. It's amazing, man. Anyway, um, you just, you, you kind of got to think of the timing of this whole thing. All right. So you've got Hong Kong, you know, that whole deal that's, that's happening over there where they're about to, to, to go from colonial, colonial law to, you know, China's going to take them back or China's going to, I don't know the I don't know the whole thing, but I know there's tons of protesting that was happening going on there. China's protesting. All right. You've got the population in China which is out of control. You've got population all over the world which is out of control because what used to what used to uh uh control the population was wars. And and we don't have a whole lot of wars anymore, at least not on the American part where where there's a lot of American casualties. So you've got the United States whose, whose population is growing rapidly and, you know, flu takes out some DUIs take out, you know, there's, 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 it, it does, it does, it thins out, it thins out a, a little bit, but, you know, and then you also have, uh, uh, Trump, you know, who's, who's, you know, his whole platform was, you know, the economy, the economy, the economy. Well, this thing gets released. Now the market starts tanking. If we go into a recession, guess what? That what's going to happen for him? Oh well, look, look at what happened on your watch, and they're already attacking him. I'm no Trump supporter by any means because he doesn't support labor uh, at all, and none of these people support the working class. They all despise the working class. Every single one of them, the right, the left, all the corporatists, they hate the working class. All right. So everything that they do is devised to keep the working class down. They don't want us to, they don't want us to rise up. Tulsi Gabbard and even, and even Bernie Sanders, you know, he's talking about, you know, rights for the working, rights for the working class and, and, you know, healthcare for everybody, which every country out there has healthcare, you know, free healthcare. You know, you know, they talk about free market and capitalism, dude. This is not, there's no free market here. When you have a government that is giving bailouts to all these, you know, failing companies when something bad happens, that is not free market. Free market means you let the, you let the ones fail that fail and then other ones come up behind it. Yep. We, we live, we live in, we live in a, we live in a matrix, all right? And that's when you see the, the, the movie, The Matrix, it's very real. 
That's that's really what it is, man. We're not free. We're being programmed. We have a we have a a, a media that that tries to divide us and you know keeps keeps us you know seeing only what they want us to see. That's why, that's why they blacked out Tulsi Gabbard because she's talking the truth and they don't want it. They don't want the public to hear that. Yeah, and I like Tulsi Gabbard because she is telling the truth. You know, and it's a you shame. Know, in my opinion, you know, I like her a lot. But, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, we're, we're at about an hour and 13, Joe. Hey, Sean, man. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, I'm glad that you thought of me, you know, to do this. And, you know, I, one thing I didn't talk about, the reason I wrote the book or the way, the way it came about, I was journaling stuff, right? Because I, as a new father, I was struggling with, I was still struggling with some things. And I discovered by writing stuff down, pen to paper, it, it was kind of therapeutic. And my wife says, said, she's probably read a thousand books. She goes, you should really write a book. It can help people. She's a mental health nurse. And she knew, she's, she come to know all the stories that, you know, I shared with you. And that was my motivation, that if it helps to one person, to book, oh, I've got to tell people how they can find the book. Yeah, yeah, you can do all that. I'm going to have you uh, share your show some your ah, your social media and anywhere they can find you, where they can find your book at. Okay. And then also you can uh send me links to everything and uh uh through an email and I'll throw that in the show notes as well. All right. So I'm going to mention that now. Yeah, go ahead. Find- okay. Yeah, so thank you for the time, Sean. Um it was an honor and a privilege. Um I know you're busy and it just it means a lot to me that you took the time out. I do have a Facebook page for those that are interested, Joe Potosi. Um, if you go on that page, uh, I'd love to have you come on. If you scroll down, you can see excerpts of my book, etc. cetera. Um, there's a lot of links to different podcasts I've done things of that nature. If you're looking to buy the book, to purchase the book, you can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Zulon Press. Also, I do have an Instagram page, Joe Potosi, as well as Twitter. So there's a few different ways to reach me. And um, I guess it's not helpful now, but I do have a website that's on the verge of being done. I can send that to you later, Sean. But anyway, um, yeah. Oh, I lost you there, buddy. You there?
All right. Well, it looks like I lost Joe there. It's a spotty internet connection. I was trying to get him back, but uh, I uh, haven't been able to. So uh just want to thank Joe for, for coming on the show and, uh, you know, sharing his story and his truth with us. Uh, like I said, you can reach him, uh, through all his social media handles. I'll be having all that stuff, uh, on the uh, show notes as well. So anyways, thank you guys for, uh, tuning in and, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the show and thank you, Joe, uh, for being a guest. Appreciate, uh, your honesty and your, uh, your, your, um, transparency. Uh, it's definitely something that's needed out there. You know, authenticity is going, uh, a lot further these days than a lot of the, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. The, uh, insincerity, uh, lack of, uh, transparency, um, in society and, and the media and the stuff that we have to deal with that's being thrown at us every day. Um, if you're on social media like Facebook or, uh, I don't know, Instagram's got a little, is a little kind of its own, own thing. Uh, but it's just, there's just constant, you know, we're being bombarded with, you know, coronavirus, this, that. I mean, it's like, no, you can't turn anywhere without, without hearing about it. I mean, I want to be up to date, but I, I, I just, I had to tune out of all of that and, you know, try and focus on some of the things that, you know, are important to me and, and reflecting, you know, we're in, we're, we're being isolated. Uh, and I think the, it, it I think the important thing is, is not to waste the time. Don't waste the time that, that you've been given to, um, do whatever it is you need to do, whether it's, uh, you know, work on yourself, you know, you've got some, some, you know, character defects that you're, you're wanting to, um, address. It's a good time to start looking at that. Uh, if you have, you know, got children and you need to read to them more or, you you know, there's something that you're lacking, you know, in that department that you need, you could be doing better on. Uh, it's a good time for that, too. You know, anything that that you feel as a person, because we all have these uh, thoughts in our head like, damn, you know what? I, I could be doing I could be doing better at that. Um, you know, I could be whatever it is, you name it, uh, more helpful, you know, around the house, you know, with my wife, you know, does she need something? Uh, you know, for myself, it's, you know, I procrastinate. So, you know, Hey, maybe, maybe we don't push this off another day and, and let's just get it done. Uh, that's something I struggle with, but there's something that we could be doing. Uh, besides just laying around stressing over something that we're not going to be able to change. Uh, I know we all have bills. Um, the, the future is, is there's, I'm not saying it's bleak, but it just, uh, I mean, there's no, I think the, the fear that I was, ta- I was talking about last night in one of these, uh, episodes that I'm going to release next was, it, it's just, 
it's not fear of the virus itself. It's just fear of the uncertainty of what's coming. You know, how long are we going to be on this uh, uh, shelter in place? Is it going to last more than the three weeks? What if it goes into like two months? I mean, luckily I'm 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 okay uh, financially for at least a month, but I, it's it's just uncertain. You know, like what's next? Uh, you know, and don't even, don't even get involved with the, the political shit that's going on. I mean, that's a whole nother thing to be stressed about. And then we got the, uh, the economy tanking. I mean, there's just three major things that are happening all at one time. And it's just, none of us has ever been here before ever. So it's just kind of a trip watching it all play out and just sort of being in my little uh you know 38 foot fifth wheel um you know tiny living and just sort of like sitting here going holy shit you know is it is this is this really gonna happen i mean is there gonna be other crazy shit that that follows this you know mass hysteria you know uh civil war like all these crazy things start going through my head man and uh i it's overwhelming <laughs> but you know i guess whatever's going to happen is going to happen you know all i can do is is you know try to do my part to to help the best that i can and not add to the uh to the mass hysteria and the, the hoarding of, of groceries and, and uh, paper products and, and all of that. So I don't know if you're out there and you're kind of doing the same thing, you know, congrats, kudos to you. You know, it's not easy. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get through this uh, one way or another. That's uh, for sure. Hopefully it's, uh, in a lot better situation than, than we went in with, uh, you know, maybe this is teaching people that, Hey, look, you know, you kind of need to, uh, rely on each other. Don't be so, uh, distant from one another. You know, if you've got a neighbor, maybe it's a good time after this is all over that you haven't met before to go introduce yourself. Hey, I'm your neighbor. I've been living next to you for eight years and have no idea who you are. Uh, that's where we were at before this. And hopefully it won't be like that after this. Anyways, uh, that's all I got until uh, the next one, which will be in, in a couple of days. Uh, keep it 100. Stay true to yourself and uh, everything else is just noise.